Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. We're joined by Dr. Peter Chin Hung, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Physician at UCSF's Medical Center, covering for Dr. John Swartzberg while he's on vacation. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on. I want to start by asking you to uh, ground truth something that came across my radar from the New York Times this morning. This is their very widely read morning newsletter, The Morning, uh, where David Leonhardt pointed at a, a couple different charts of excess mortality, that is, how many more people are dying in a given span of time than we would expect, uh, given their ages and other circumstances, uh, to say that it looks like we have finally returned to a pre-pandemic level of safety. I says it's a useful measure because it, it kind of makes it relevant to any uh, debates over whether deaths are being properly attributed to COVID-19 or not. Uh, but he does cite three different measures of excess mortality, which don't quite agree with each other. So I thought it would be useful to ground truth this. As they say, you work in the clinics. Does it feel like the pandemic is over? It doesn't feel like the pandemic is over at all, but it feels like the pandemic is a lot better and, you know, I think we're, we celebrate when the times are good. And, but, you know, I think we are, you know, keeping an open mind for the future and we just want to keep the house in order, make sure the roof is, is repaired. And, you know, we don't go around the world being in a state of panic, but we're just using all the tools that we have. I mean, the, <laughs> it's funny you say that because at a policy level, we've been slowly laying down the tools one after the other for responding to the pandemic. Um, I guess it, it, it raises a, a bigger question, which is like, we never may be back to what we were before COVID-19, but is COVID-19 becoming more predictable, something that's more endemic? Uh, something with a, a regular seasonal pattern of spread? I think many of us believe that that will happen, but whether or not it will happen for sure remains to be seen. And that's because we haven't seen a whole year's worth of the cadence yet of COVID. And we know that many other respiratory viruses have had an abnormal periodicity or cadence because of uh, how abnormal the world has been in the last three and a half years. But, you know, if if I had to predict, I think we'll see another um, increase in cases that's substantial in the winter, but we probably will just see ups and downs before then. But, you know, the only thing predictable about COVID before was that it was unpredictable. So I think that's where we, we're coming down to. I think I know what's happening, but again, I'm not 100% sure. 
Well, on, on the topic of seasonality, we got, uh, I, I think, a useful question through our inbox. Uh, this came from Krishnan in Mountain View, who asked about the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, it, it is winter for half the planet. It, if the disease is settling into a seasonal cadence, one would expect to be seeing a, a winter surge uh, in, in the Southern Hemisphere. Is anything like that happening? No, it's not. Um, but again, what happened is that everyone kind of got infected around the same time so that it hasn't really settled down yet. And that's to your point early on or to your question, uh, has it settled down to a pattern yet? It hasn't because we've had um, multiple people in different hemispheres exposed at the same time so that you know, there hasn't really been a seasonal pattern yet um, because the population immunity is high and, um, you know, people have some sort of immunity all around the world at the same time. Mm. So the issue would be that people all around the world would also see that immunity decline at around the same time because we know immunity to COVID wanes. Exactly. And... Um, so, so yes, but I think that the reason why people are looking at the northern hemisphere for increase in COVID and respiratory viruses uh, this winter is because it also tracks with when people have waned their immunity, particularly in the older individuals. It, you know, I think may happen later in the year. It's already happening now to a certain degree, but I think for most of the population, it probably will decline towards the end of the year um, and we get together in larger numbers. So that's why, you know, maybe this year might be the beginning of the seasonal pattern for most of the world. We're taking your questions on COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. Our guest this week, filling in for Dr. Schwartzberg, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Physician at UCSF's Medical Center. The phone number, 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. Dr. Chin Hong, I feel like we should uh, follow up on some of the questions we asked you last time we had you on, uh, which was during Pride Month, when we were starting to see some warnings about potential MPOX clusters as a result of Pride activities, uh, that that's a bit in the rearview mirror now. Uh, what's come of the concern about MPOX? Do we have it under control? Well, it looks like uh, there wasn't there weren't many cases, which is a great thing, and it, it really be, is because MPOX is a little bit different from COVID. If you want to compare and contrast. Uh, when you get MPOX, uh, you have a lot more immunity for a lot longer. And um, because probably the highest risk individuals got it uh, as as true infection and the others were vaccinated, uh, it led to a force field against MPOX in, in the three most uh, prominent cities where the epidemic was the worst. That is San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York City. So that when Pride came this year, or Pride events, and they're still happening, uh, we haven't really seen uh, as huge an uptick, and that's because it's you're talking about a different beast, and and that's a good thing. But I think, again, um, there will be awareness and and continued uh, information about tracking these cases carefully um, and and using again both 
therapeutics as well as as vaccines when needed. All right, let's go to questions from some of our callers. We can start in the East Bay in Oakland, where Anissa is on the line. Good morning, Anissa. Good morning. Um, thank you, Dr. Hahn, for uh, coming online. You know, I, I and many, many others, we really depend on, on just this wisdom and information. I have a question about just historic um, pandemics. Is there anything that we can learn from um, past pandemics, the 1918 flu, even the bubonic plague outbreaks, to help guide us in towards um, future, you know, our future behaviors? Thank you. That's a great question, Anissa, and and thanks for your kind comments. Um, I think there are several lessons so far at this phase in the pandemic uh, we could learn from the 1918 flu pandemic. Number one is that pandemics do wane over time, and we're seeing that happening. But uh, the second thing is that for some people, the effects of the pandemic still linger, and the vestiges of 1918 are still around, for example, in in certain types of flu that come from year to year. So that, that, that um, you know, certainly rings true right now. And I think the, the third lesson that I learned is one, a social lesson, which is that, you know, just like what's happening now with misinformation and conspiracy, that happened also in 1918. Of course, it didn't really travel as far and as quickly because there wasn't social media or any, easy way to do that then but uh you know that that happened then too it, and and certainly it's happening now as well i mean that that was a pandemic that took place during world war one there was a lot of government suppression of information about the level of illness because uh, nobody wanted to look weak yes nobody wanted to look weak and um they wanted to you know, not have people desert the the troops because of of deaths on the battlefield that weren't always due to weapons. They were due to, uh, you know, diseases. So I think there was a lot of, um, you know, regulation of information um, at that point, given the wars, as you said, Brian. All right, let's go a little bit north for our next call. Mark is on the line in El Sobrante. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I'm here. What's your question? Ah, uh, earlier this spring, I visited some family, a 98-year-old man and an 82-year-old woman. They were fully vaccinated and boosted, and when I was arriving to meet with them, they both had te- they were both feeling a little ill, and they had co- uh, tested positive for COVID. So they they had COVID, and they were fine. They 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 they're a little low energy. They were a little out of sorts, but it was like a very mild cold that they experienced. So I'm trying to understand how I should let this affect my thinking about COVID. It makes me think, gee, COVID may be around, but man, if it didn't do anything to a 98-year-old guy, for those who are lucky enough to be fully vaccinated and boost, what's really the worry? 
Mark, I'm going to start with the caveat we throw out pretty often, um, which is that the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> My wife, who is 40, vaccinated and boosted, got COVID and uh, was knocked flat with 102 degree fever on her first day of symptoms before we got them under control with Paxlovid. So uh, you should, shouldn't extrapolate from one person's experience to uh, what a generalized threat might be like. But Dr. Chin Hong, let me, let me <laughs> hand the microphone over to someone more qualified. Uh, no, I, I think what you just said, Brian, was true. And and Mark, I totally understand, um, you know, the feeling that, wow, you saw these elderly folks um, uh, navigate an infection easily. And I, I think, you know, there are several lessons. First of all, um, the elderly couple w was up to date on vaccines. We do know that, you know, fewer than 50% of those over 65 actually got the current uh, updated booster. Of course, there will be a new one in September, but even that. So I think they they are put into, you know, probably the best group uh, that could stick around. Uh, and I didn't know if they took Paxlovid. That will be another reason to um, help them stay away from the hospital. And um, and the third is what Ryan brought out, which is, you know, I, I feel fortunate whenever someone does well, but again, I'm I'm always worried if somebody is particularly older or immune compromised and uh, is unvaccinated or or haven't gotten the most recent booster. So I think that's a more worrisome group versus uh, the other groups. But still with every older person, I'd want to make sure that they have access to early therapies as well, even if they were not vaccinated. In fact, if they're not vaccinated, uh, that gives them... Uh, even more, it's even more important to give them access to Paxlovid or early therapies like remdesivir. I guess the, the second end point, we, we've been talking about death as if that's the only bad thing that can result from an infection. We're, we're still kind of nailing down uh, a lot of questions around how many people get long COVID and uh, at, at what level of severity? Exactly. So there are other repercussions of an infection, even if you survive, which is most people, uh, and they include chronic conditions. Um, long COVID, of course, is about 200 different symptoms that people might have. They may not all last for a year or so. Some people have it last for a few months, but those months could really have an impact on quality of life. Fortunately, that uh, probability is much lower if you're vaccinated and if you take Paxlovid. But, uh, and also we're seeing fewer overall with the new variants compared to the earlier variants. But nevertheless, it's unpredictable. Um, and of course, every time an older person gets infected, um, just having fevers or um, while you're taking other medications uh, can lead to dehydration and other complications that don't have anything to do with COVID, but was ignited by the the aspect of getting ill. Um, so, you know, like, like heat stroke. So I think those are all things to think about, particularly with the elderly population, our immune compromised population. Um, and again, nothing to be fearful of. In fact, one can say that just like in that uh, article you quoted, this morning, Brian, 
Ashish Shah said, and I believe that, that almost all deaths are preventable right now at COVID, but we're not mm -hmm. all taking advantage of all the weapons that we have. Vaccination, early therapeutics, what else? And just knowing if you have it, which leads to that. So, uh -huh. so doing testing, um, I think that's all fallen off for a lot of folks. But again, the, the condition that might look like a cold for someone might have more serious consequences um, in, in the person who's older or immune compromised. All right, let's take our next call from Alameda. Hetty is on the line. Good morning, Hetty. Good morning, and thank you so much for the really, uh, you know, priceless program. Thank you. I have a question. I have a friend who just turned 90. Uh, he had been a very, very vigorous, active, humorous individual. Um, uh, he experienced some other issues and uh, is no longer quite as physically active. And then he got covid and since he had COVID, he lives with his partner, who is considerably younger. They both got COVID, a female partner. And since then, he has experienced pretty significant uh, short-term memory loss, is kind of mm -hmm. out of it, et cetera. And is COVID probably, or po no, I didn't mean probably, possibly the cause, or is this totally unrelated and maybe just uh, an element of older age, which happens to some people? So that's my question. Is there any relationship that we know of between COVID and memory loss? Yes, um, that's a great question, Hedy. There have been several studies now showing that um, uh, people who get COVID have an increased risk of diagnosis of some uh, memory loss disorders or memory disorders later on. Uh, I'm not sure if that necessarily applies to your friend, but um, you know there's a slight increased risk. It could be that uh, COVID of course, biologically, the virus SARS-CoV-2 affects the brain matter, but it can also mean that people are more um, engaged in the medical system when when you're older and you have COVID so that certain diagnoses get unroofed uh, more easily. But you are noticing uh, some memory loss, which could be one of uh, two things. It can either be uh, something that uh, was going to happen, but you're noticing it more because everyone's paying attention. Number two, it could be related to long COVID, um, which is a chronic condition after people get COVID. And again, as I mentioned, a whole host of different kinds of symptoms. But if it's long COVID in some people, it will go away, uh, you know, after a few months, some people may have it linger for a longer period. So that that is more reversible. So that's that's kind of what we're dealing with. And number three could be it may just be a temporary state just from, you know, the the stresses of, of getting ill that might return to normal, uh, you know, sooner rather than later. To Hedy's question, though, uh, brain fog is a, a commonly reported form of long COVID. Uh, you're kind of going into 
different things that could explain either why it's being reported or why it's being experienced. Yes. So I'm talking about if you really wanted to distill it down into categories, two main categories. One is on a direct effect from the virus itself, which is what brain fog is, uh, meaning that um, it's from the either from the archived virus that's still around uh, or the inflammation caused from the virus that's long gone. And that inflammation leads to, um, you know, your immune cells sort of um, uh, attacking parts of the body. Um, and then the second bucket, apart from the direct effects of the virus, is um, Alzheimer's disease, actually, which is the, the most common uh, memory use a memory disorder that um, has been identified as as having an uptick after diagnosis of COVID, um, even if you don't have long COVID. Mm-hmm. All right. Looks like we can try to squeeze in one more call if we go quickly. Michael's on the line in Inverness. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, uh, Brian Edward. Um, this is my deal. I have a new perspective on the whole thing that most people don't look at. I like to cut to the chase and give the doctor a new perspective that he might be open to. I am in pers- personal excellent health. I've been a mountain bicyclist, drummer since the 60s. And my thing is, I think the brain waves are being cut by the 5G, the cell phone towers, because I happen to live in a, in a microwave of a van. So I'm feeling like white noise all the time. So I think if, if the brain cells and the brain waves get dwarfed and, and torted and tweaked by all the electricity, that that could cause the whole deep root of the a, a brain brain waves breaking down, which will make the immune system weak, which is where the COVID starts. From yeah, Michael, that is problem. not that is not a new idea, and that is not a question. But uh, I appreciate the call. Uh, this has been a, a persistent conspiracy theory since early in the pandemic, Doctor Chin Hong. Uh, over the course of pandemic, mortality from COVID has dropped. The amount of installed five G antennas has increased. Uh, anything you want to say about it? No, I agree with you, Brian, Um, and thanks for bringing that up, Michael. I don't think there is as much evidence for that linkage as as far as I know right now, but I think, uh, you know, people are continuing to look at the impact of the environment on disease, so thanks for bringing that up for sure. I I should footnote there there are legitimate health and safety concerns uh, with, with, with exposure to, you know, the radiation that comes from all the antennas around us, um, attributing the effects of an infectious disease to them is just kind of like outside the bounds of biological plausibility. They're different things. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think it's, you know, there, you know, certain other kinds of illnesses uh, can possibly be spread by these waves, but infectious diseases are pretty... um, you know, I think we understand transmission a little bit more, um, fortunately, at this point. All right. Dr. Chin Hong, appreciate your time. Thanks for speaking to us. My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Peter Chin Hong is a professor of medicine and infectious disease physician at UCSF Medical Center. Dr. John Schwartzberg will be back with us for Corona Calls next week.
All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.